Our topic today, knowing the invisible God. It's a difficult thing to know something that's invisible, right? Would you say that's a big challenge to our faith? Okay. Well, how many of you have heard of a man named Lee Strobel? Any of you heard of him? Okay. He was quite an atheist for the majority of his life until he began investigating uh, the claims of Scripture, um, mainly prophecy, and he was converted. And now he's quite a, a leader, you might say, and he has a, a program that he did some years back. Um, it's called Faith Under Fire. Have any of you ever seen Faith Under Fire, that series, any part of it? Okay, a few of you. It's a sad thing, that, but it's a fact, and that is that through the majority of those little mini-debates that he sets up on those programs, he, he'll, have, he'll bring in uh, two people. You know, he'll have one person who is a Christian. He'll have another person who is from some other faith. And he pits them with, you know, with, with these questions, and they are supposed to give a reply, give an answer. And the sad fact is, is that the majority of the time, if you look at it with an open mind, if you're listening to the questions critically and the answers critically, um, you realize that the Christians, the vast majority of the time, do a very, very poor job of making an answer for their faith, for their, their position regarding the topic or the question. Um, I, was, I, I had watched the series with excitement, thinking I'm going to be hearing some really good, competent answers that stand up for Christianity, right? I thought this is going to be great. I'm going to be able to take notes. I was sitting there with my pad, thinking I'm going to take notes on this. But the fact of the matter is, is that uh, the Christians, they fell down time and time and time again. How, do, how is it that they don't know how to stand up for their faith? The answer is actually in our, in our verse, our uh, text for the day. They know not the scripture or the power of God. There's where the problem is. In fact, in, when, when I was watching them, for instance, there's one, uh, one episode where they had a rabbi who was going against, so to speak, a Christian. And honestly, the rabbi knew scripture. He knew the Old Testament scripture better than the Christian. And you see that over and over again through that series. The uh, Muslim that they had, he knew the Quran better than the Christian knew the scripture. Okay? And then there's that added statement there in the text saying the power of God, scripture and the power of God. How do we know the power of God? What are we basing our faith on in scripture and in the power of God? Well, some people would like us to believe that faith is like stepping off a cliff into the unknown. Have any of you had people come to you with that kind of idea, or maybe you've thought that yourself, that faith is just this leaping off, like saying, I don't know what I'm doing, but I've got faith. You know, and you hurl yourself off the cliff. Have any of you heard of it referred to that way? Okay. Well, that's how some people uh, look at faith. But it's kind of like uh, with Mr. Blair with his uh, presentation this morning, it's what's on the inside that counts. And I, I was thinking about this as he was making the presentation. You know, 
the way some people approach Scripture is kind of like that fruit. They cut into the fruit, they throw the seeds away, but they just eat the good part. They eat the good stuff. They don't want to take the time to tend to the seeds to give them the time to allow them to germinate, to sprout, to grow, that they could produce that 11,000, you know, fold, you know, of that one fruit produced over again. And that's kind of how it is with Scripture. A lot of uh, churches, a lot of people, they want to come in and they want to take what they see as the good stuff, the easy stuff, the stuff that's just right there on the surface, the stuff you can grab and don't have to chew it too long. You just swallow it and enjoy the flavor, right? But... There is a part of Scripture, a good part of Scripture, that you have to tend it kind of like that seed. And you know, uh, Pastor, in the weeks past, he's been talking to us about the parables of Jesus. And one of them was the parable of what? The sower and the seed, right? I think Jesus uses that parable for a very good reason. Because Scripture is like seed. We need to allow it to have the time to dwell on it, to concentrate on it, to tend it, to allow it to produce fruit. Okay? Uh, it's not something you're just going to get like that. You need to put some time into it, some thought into it. I know people who put a lot of time and thought into all kinds of things, be it NASCAR, be it uh, football, be it what? What do we have going on right now? Soccer. Yeah. Whatever it be. I mean, people put incredible time and effort. I know people who, they, they are focused on drag racing. And they could tell you the, the names of all the drivers, the stats of all the drivers. They could tell you all about what alterations have been done to which cars and all this kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? There are people who focus intently on many things. What about Scripture? You know, what about letting it take hold in your life and producing fruit? We want to take a look at this issue of faith. Is faith so intangible or nebulous that it all becomes a matter of opinion and personal preference? And that's what I see when I watch that Faith Under Fire series is that Christianity has become something that in order to meld or unite all the various denominations, they just let it become like a, like a tapioca pudding. I don't know. It's just a mush, you know? It just becomes a bunch of something sweet uh, where you let all the details go. You let the, you know, the facts go, so to speak. You let the, de the, the details of Scripture go so that you have something that suits everybody. So everybody is happy. All the Christians can be happy. But then, in doing that, they've cheapened it, weakened it to the point where it cannot even stand up. It cannot stand up against all other religions in the world. But of course, you know that if you've watched Oprah Winfrey or anything else like that, there's, there's this push in society today to say that all roads lead to God. Kind of like the old saying, all roads lead to Rome which we know is very much the case, actually. The, the thing is, we look into Scripture and we find that there is a foundation. There is something solid to build our faith upon. Okay? And we're going to be looking into that. The continuing statement. Or, okay, as opposed to this idea that, that faith is something intangible. 
Or is there evidence for our faith that assures us when we are on the track of true faith? And I put that word in there, true, because not all faith is true biblical faith. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. There has been an ardent attempt made in recent years to place all religious and spiritual thought in the realm of what is termed relative truth. Have any of you heard that term, relative truth? I know in college, I took uh, classes in philosophy, uh, classes in sociology, uh, various other classes. I know I heard this repeated over and over again, this idea of relative truth. You know, the funny thing is, they will teach relative truth until it comes time for the exam. Have you noticed that? If they really believe in this idea of relative truth, why doesn't everyone get an A? Okay? There's a certain, amen, uh, certain amount of... Uh, oh, I don't know. I don't, shouldn't say it. There's an irony in it. Let's put it that way. That's a nicer term than what I was thinking. Anyway, the idea that they are promoting is that there is nothing solid on which to base faith. It is taught that by its very nature, faith is without logic or reason. I go on these online, um, what do you want to call them? Kind of like forums or chats where you have, you know, like Amazing Facts has, has some on their website. There's different uh, Christian websites out there. Um, the Adventist uh, News Network, uh, they, have, uh, they have these kind of things also. But you see these debates that are going on. And I know some of you probably have been onto some of those kind of things and seen this. There are these huge debates going on where this is what people are basically pointing to, is saying that, th that is the skeptics, they're saying that faith is just illogical. Faith is just like throwing your brain away. It's like checking your, checking your hat at the door. No, you check your brain at the door. And you all come in and you sit here like mindless zombies and just take whatever's fed to you. And it can be the biggest bunch of junk. But this is what skeptics promote. This is what they say, okay? And I see this in the, these chat rooms and places, different, different times, these forums, um, where they're talking about faith and what it means to have faith. But is this what the Bible teaches concerning true faith? Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the, what's the word? Substance of things hoped for. The, what? Evidence of things not seen. Right. Now substance. I'm, I've got a dictionary definition up here. Okay, substance, it's a noun. It implies something real, not imaginary. Okay, something solid, not empty. Okay, so it's something very real, something tangible, right? Not intangible. Evidence, that's the second word that's used there to define faith. Evidence, it comes from the word in Latin, video. You think about that, drop the E off the beginning of evidence, you've got... All, everything but the O there, right? Comes from the same word as video, which means to see. That which illustrates and enables the mind to see truth. That's what evidence is. Proof arising from our own perceptions by the senses or from the testimony of others 
or from inductions of reason. The deductions of the mind from facts or arguments furnish evidence of truth or falsehood. You get that? Okay. So even evidence is something rather factual, rather tangible. It's, it's arguable. And something's only arguable if it has some basis, right? So does God give us any evidence or proof that he is real? What do you think? We know, like with that melon, you know, that's something real. It shows us something about the power of God. Nature does tell us something about the power of God. It is truly God's second book, right? Or however you want to look at it. You could look at it as the first book, seeing as it came around before Scripture, right? Um, Does God give us evidence that his word can be trusted? Some people want to say that it's all made up. I know I have people in my own family who believe that the scripture, the word of God, was just something that was creatively thrown together by people who wanted to try to pull a hoax on people. Last point, or that our faith is not based on a lie. Okay, so we want to see that our faith is not based on a lie. What, what evidence is there for that? In the book of Isaiah, chapters 41 through 46, and anyone who's heard me speak before has heard this time and time again. I harp on it quite a bit, but there's good reason for it because I believe this is the basis of faith. This is the basis of uh, faith in the Word of God, faith in God in general. God declares that Cyrus, in Isaiah chapters 41 through 46, that Cyrus the Persian would lead his armies his army, to overthrow Babylon. This is absolutely amazing because the declaration was made in very great detail. If you read through this section of Scripture, it was made in very great detail some 150 years before the birth of Cyrus. Okay? And in, in those passages, it declares that God himself says, Cyrus doesn't even know me. Cyrus doesn't have any clue that I'm the one that's doing this, that I'm the one that's setting him up to conquer. He doesn't know anything about me. He doesn't serve me. Why does God do it? We're going to look at this. It's really amazing. But you see, something that is wonderful about this prophecy is that we can go to the British Museum in London where is housed the Cyrus Cylinder, which affirms the fulfillment of these prophecies in Isaiah 41 through 46. It explains exactly what happened. Okay? And this is a historical document, okay? But it outlines exactly what the Scriptures foretold before it ever happened. You see? It affirms the truth of Scripture. The conclusion by many skeptics was that such biblical insight as found in the writings of uh, Isaiah and Daniel must have been added to the Bible after the events had taken place so as to make the Bible appear to foretell the future. You see? That's what the skeptics have said. 
That is, they said that until the ancient Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, which included both the books of Isaiah and the book of, of Daniel. In fact, it included some portion of every book of the Old Testament except the book of Esther. Okay? And they were proving that they contained the prophecies of future events long before the events actually came to pass. Then the question became, how is this possible? Who could do such a thing? How? how? I mean, you know, they try to compare uh, such writers as uh, Nostradamus and others to uh, saying that they, they were prophetic or that they had some kind of prophecies that they wrote. Some people try to compare John the Revelator to... Uh, different seers that they claim existed. Well, they did, you know, some of them did exist. Some of them we don't have any proof that they ever existed. But there are writings that still exist claiming that certain women, it was very prevalent in, in that area of um, Palestine uh, for women to be prophetesses. And many of them were not, how do I say this? They were not Christians. They were not Jews. They were pagan prophetesses. And some people try to say that John was nothing more than what they were, which were hallucinating. They, they, they actually believe that they would um, take things that would make them hallucinate and such things as that. And that that was what the prophecies of Scripture were based on, were these ideas of, of going into some kind of altered state. But that is not true. Look at what the Bible tells us. Man's stubborn heart refuses to acknowledge what the very book of Isaiah reveals about itself to us. In Isaiah 41, verse 4, it says, Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last. In other words, I'm not going anywhere. I'm still going to be there. I am He. God desires to know why people choose to follow false prophets and false gods. Why do they refuse to listen to the true prophets of the true God? Look at this. In Isaiah 41, verses 21 through 24, it says, Produce your cause. This is the word of the Lord. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the King of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things that they, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things for to come. Does that make sense? Here we go. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that ye are gods. Yea, do good. Or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooseth you. Now, just in case that's not clear enough, I'm going to uh, read this one more time. I just love this. This is from, I'm reading out of a paraphrase, the, king, the uh, clear word. 
I just want this to sink in. Look at how defiant God is being here. I just love it. The Lord, the King of Israel, says to the nations, Present your case. Let me hear your arguments. Bring on your gods and let them tell us the future. Let them predict what will happen. Let them explain to us the meaning of the events of the past so we can know the outcome. Let them tell us what the future holds and describe to us things to come so that we can know that they are real gods. Bring on your idols and let them do something. Let them do good or bad we, so we can see it and be filled with joy or fear. But your idols can't move. They can't even see. And yet you worship them. That's an abomination. You see how defiant the Lord is? What do you think? He is God, right? He is the only true God. That's what he's putting out there. Take a look with me at Isaiah 44, verses 24 through 26. Okay? Isaiah uh, 44, 24 through 26. Now, I don't want people thinking I'm getting away from the King James, so I read it here and then I read it here, okay? Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself, that frustrateth the token of the liars, and maketh diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolishness, that confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers. Okay? Now, it says in the clear word here, This is what the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you is, or in the womb says, I am the Lord who made all things and stretched out the heavens and made the earth, and no one was there to help me. I frustrated the plans of false prophets and turned fortune tellers into fools. Okay? I turned the words of the wise into foolishness and showed their knowledge to be nonsense. But when my servants make predictions, when I send my servants to prophesy and my messengers to tell you my plans, those plans will be carried out and those prophecies will come true. Um, So we see that God is very defiant, right? He wants us to understand that he has the authority because he is the one that made everything. And Isaiah 45, 9 tells us, look at this, woe. You know the word woe? That means like, woe is me. Like, you know, uh, woe be it to them. How's the word? How do I explain that? Woe. It's like uh, shame on you or, or kind of like uh, you're in a bad way. <laughs> okay, you're, you're in a bad way. That's what he's telling them. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Okay, you're fighting against your maker. Let the potsherd, okay, that's meaning the one made out of clay. We're all made out of clay, right? Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds. In other words, fight among yourselves. Let them fight among the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to the, 
to him that fashioneth it, what makest thou? Okay, or thy work. He hath no, under, no, no hands. Do you see what this is saying? God's saying, how is it you're going to argue with me? How is it? I guess I could have read it out of here too. It's so clear. I, I love the uh, plain English. Let me just do that real quick. Verse 9. It says, Woe to you who argue with your maker. You are only a piece of pottery. Does a clay vessel argue with him who shapes it? Does, a cl- does the clay say, What are you doing to me? Does a vessel accuse its maker of poor workmanship? Right? This is what you see in classes, right? In these philosophy classes in school. I know I, I heard it. They like to talk about God as though he was a delinquent parent. that He just ran off and left us here. But God shows us in his word that by prophecy, we are not alone. He is still in control. And if we will just trust him, everything is going to be all right. God challenges all the false gods together. Look at this, Isaiah 45, 21 through 22. Tell ye and bring them near. Okay, so bring all these false gods near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Okay, in other words, not just one of them, but let them all come together and put all their heads together. Yeah. Okay, bring them together. Who hath declared this from ancient times? Okay, so he's like, let them speak up. Let them tell who's done this. Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside, beside me. A just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. In Isaiah 46 you notice I'm just walking right through because it's just right there chronologically. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Remember this and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Okay, so he's saying, here's something you guys need to remember. This is what he's saying. O ye transgressors, remember the former things of old. And this is one you've probably heard many times if you've been around an Adventist church. This is one we quote very frequently. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. This is the one that we quote most frequently, but this is the conclusion of an entire line that the Lord is presenting. You see that? I wanted to take you through in this, in this presentation here, this sermon. I wanted to take you through so you can see the background behind this statement. Because this gets relied on very heavily in, in different uh, Bible studies, different prophecy series, things like that. But a lot of people, uh, many times, people do not understand the weight of this statement. How much is behind it. This is not just one little isolated phrase. It has... Chapters behind it, building up to this final conclusion, right? Where God puts set forth this statement. 
We look at Luke 24, verse 25. This was um, the road to Emmaus. I've preached that sermon before. I might do it again sometime in case anybody didn't catch it. Um, and I praise the Lord. I, you know, you, it makes you really happy when you hear other people preaching stuff that you've preached, right? Doug Batchelor, yesterday on Hope Channel, he preached this exact same sermon that I've preached before on, not this one, but the one on the road to Emmaus. And he was hitting the exact same points, and I was like, all right. <laughs> um, it's really cool. And it says, uh, regarding Jesus walking along with his two disciples there, Cleopas and the companion, Then Jesus said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Okay, according to Jesus, according to Christ, what does he call someone who does not know prophecy? Hmm? Calls them fools, right? Now that might sound mean, right? Sounds cruel. Could it also be just simply the truth? Okay. According to Christ, here he is talking with disciples that have followed him, prayed with him, ate with him, done so many things with him, spending so much time with him. Better than what we get to do, right? They were there face to face with him. And yet, after all of that, he calls them fools because they do not know prophecy. According to Jesus, where do we go to learn prophecy? What does it tell us there? All that the prophets have spoken. Okay, so you go to the prophets, you go to the writings of the prophets, you go to the prophets. That's where we're supposed to go. Now, some people might think we should base our understanding of prophecy on the content of movies, right? <laughs> Do you really think that Hollywood holds the answers? They just spin it the way they think will sell a movie, right? Oh, man. You know, it's like uh, when Doug Batchelor a while back, he was interviewed by, what was it, the Discovery Channel or the History Channel? Now I can't remember. Was Discovery Channel? Yeah, was it, was it National Geographic, I think? I think they were the group that was putting together the documentary. They were interviewing him, and he was sending out letters saying, oh, this is wonderful because they've in interviewed me, and they, they, uh, the, the producer, he said that I was the most knowledgeable on the subject of anybody he'd spoken with and that uh, it really made more sense than anybody else that he had heard. Uh, but then... After all of that and, and the big buildup in him sending out, you know, Doug Batchelor sending out these newsletters telling people, oh, it's going to be on, it's going to be on. I don't know, how many of you got to see it? Did any of you get to see it? He was on there. Doug Batchelor's comment was on there for maybe five seconds. Okay? Maybe five seconds of, of, of just one line. He just said like one sentence. And even that sentence was taken out of context. Can you believe it? Even the sentence was spliced in between other people's comments to where it was making him endorse something that wasn't what he was saying. And I know that because I know what he says. Hollywood has a way of putting things out that are just confounded. Okay, let's take a look at something else here. 
What about Hal Lindsey as a reliable source? Any of you heard of him? Okay, yeah, he's pretty much well known. Now, Hal Lindsey, let me give you a little background. Hal Lindsey is a Zionist, okay? Zionist, some of you, anybody not know what that means? Okay, let me tell you, Zionism, it is the belief that Israel will rise again, okay, and that they're gonna build a third temple. It's an, it's an ideology that stems from Freemasonry. They're the Masons. They're going to rebuild. They're the protectors that follow in line after the um, Knights Templar, okay? They use the same, a lot of the same symbols, a lot of the same stuff. They know that that's, you know, it is a known fact that that is their heritage. Knights Templars became Freemasons. It went that way. And the idea is that they were supposed to see to the rebuilding of Solomon's temple and that the Masons are, are to rebuild. The Templars were to protect the wealth, okay? So you want to protect the riches of Solomon and build him a temple so you can put the riches back in there so it can all be reestablished as a system. That's where this whole Zionist thing comes from. And people think it's a biblical thing. It's not. It is not from Scripture. Another point about Hal Lindsey. He is also a dispensationalist. Okay, there's another term for you. Now, I'll go ahead and define this one. Dispensationalist. It's, a, it's an ideology that, or dispensationalism actually, it's an ideology that was invented by a Jesuit named Franco Ribera as part of the Counter-Reformation theology for the purpose of destroying Protestantism. That's why it was invented. It didn't even exist before that. It had never been any part of anybody's belief system prior to Franco Ribera inventing it. Now, Hal Lindsey is best known as the author, especially, as an author, especially of his 1970 book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth, in which he uses these ideologies to create a fictitious masterpiece that has captured the minds of millions. And he continues his work of publishing these non-biblical ideas. Every book that he has written since has basically been, you know, like, growing off of the original book, The Late Great Planet Earth. So we see this is not even a biblical position. It comes from Freemasonry and the Jesuit Counter-Reformation. That's where the whole thing comes from. Now, what about the super popular Left Behind series? You have Tim LaHaye, right? Now, wouldn't you know that he is another dispensationalist? Dispensationalism comes from Franco Ribera, a Jesuit, okay? He has, Tim LaHaye, he has concentrated his time, rather than focusing on ministry from the pulpit kind of thing, he's focused his time on politics and writing. He felt that that was a better way to make an impact. He is best known for the Left Behind series of apocalyptic fiction, and he admits that it's apocalyptic fiction fiction. He co-authored this book with a guy named Jerry Jenkins, who is a former sports writer with numerous other works of fiction to his name. Now, Jerry J Jenkins, he did the actual writing of the books from LaHaye's notes, okay? The total sale for the series has surpassed 65 million copies. Isn't that unbelievable? <laughs> So when you're out there in the world, 
people are going to be thinking about the second coming, thinking about the rapture and all of this because of marketing, because of a work of fiction that was put together by a sports and fiction writer from the notes, not from the scripture, from the notes of Tim LaHaye, but not from scripture. Now, I'm happy to be able to tell you today that I come with complete confidence and I am proud to say that I am part of God's end-time church, which refuses to use fiction as part of its training material. Okay? We use the same material that was used by the Protestant Reformation some 500 years ago. Sola Scriptura, right? The Bible and the Bible only. That's what we're supposed to be using as our material. God's end-time plan is revealed in His Word. Because I have seen that prophecy enables me to know God's power and secure my faith in truth, I have determined to study for myself, abandoning all preconceived ideas, all fictitious notions, all popular thinking regarding prophecy. I've put all that aside. I, I even put aside the things that I had learned early on from within Adventism. Okay? Some people might say, well, why do you do that? Well, because... There are things that were understood within Adventism early on that came from popular teaching, popular churches outside of Ad the Adventist church. Because you remember, the Adventist church came together as a group of people from different denominations studying together, and they brought their own ideas from their own congregations, you see. And so there were some ideas that weren't quite on the up and up, not totally. Um, so you lay aside all your preconceived notions, all your prior ideas, and see what does Scripture say? What is it supporting? You get led astray by having preconceived notions. That's the thing. So I want to know what says the Lord. What saith the Lord in His holy word? And I challenge you to do the same. To take it upon yourself. Don't consider it something that's out of your, own, out of your reach. You know, and if you need some help, if you'd like some help, um, you know, it's not like I have all the answers or anything. We get we meet together on Wednesday night over here in the youth chapel for uh, the Daniel study. And we're going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And it's an open forum. Anybody can ask questions or make statements about things that they understand or things they have questions about. And we look at them and we're progressing not by how do I say this? We're not progressing by forcing our way through material at a rapid pace, we're progressing as we cover the material so that everyone's questions are answered, so we have time to take people's questions, um, listen to people's statements. You see what I'm saying? In, in college, I hated it when you would have just so many weeks to cover material, and so they would say, okay, we're skipping that chapter, okay, we're going on to the next chapter, okay, we're going on to the next chapter, and they'd say, if you had a question, they'd say, come talk to me after class, come talk to me after class. You know, uh, well, what if, what if it would have been beneficial for others to hear? So, I just challenge you to take a serious look at prophecy because it is important. It is the authority by which God claims to declare his power. You understand? That's how we have a foundation for our faith. It's through God revealing his power through prophecy. So, uh, I just pray that uh, you will take that seriously and know that God has promised His Holy Spirit, who was the one by which the prophecies were written, that He has promised Him to guide us into all truth, right? Amen. Amen.
Let's uh, bow our heads as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the promise of your Holy Spirit who will lead us into all truth. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the power of your word, prophecy, Lord, that sets the Bible, the Holy Bible, apart from all other books, apart from the Book of Mormon, apart from um, the Quran, apart from the writings of Confucius, everything else, Lord. Nothing else has prophecy that is dead on, dead on the mark, Lord, uh, like your word. Your word shows us the future without fail, and it is so impeccable that skeptics can only try to discredit it, saying that it had to have been written later. Lord, what a marvelous gift you've given us. You don't want us to be in the dark, Lord. You've declared that we are now children of the light and that we don't need to be in darkness as uh, others. But you want to share with us as a friend. Lord, we are your children and you count us as friends. You don't want to keep us in the dark. It's not about secret things and secret societies and secret orders, Lord. These are things that you want revealed. That's why you gave us the book of Revelation. Lord, we thank you for these gifts and for your willingness, Lord, to be so open with us, to let us know your plans, that we can read the last chapter. We can know how the story is going to end. And we can have confidence, Lord, that you will win. You've always won and you will continue to win. And we thank you, Lord, for that confidence, that assurance, and for your grace that saves us from this world. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.